Now, our Father, we're coming before you as people who need you. Now, in this second of the three services, again, we're praying that you will give us clear-mindedness to understand what it is that you've said because the eternal word is broken into our contemporary experience when we examine and study your word and relate it to modern-day life. This is good news for modern-day people. Father, on a Lord's Day like this, as we inch a little further into the month of June, we're thankful that you come to meet us at our point of need. Thankful for last week's celebration of graduates. There's a commencement that's occurred. Father, when we come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's a commencement that has occurred. There is a beginning. There's a new beginning. Something of significance is broken into our lives. You make the difference. As we examine these verses this morning, we're going to see the fingerprints of the divine here. We're going to see how the Holy Spirit is to be connected to our life experiences. We need wisdom to be able to understand that. So, Father, the minutes you give us are important. Praying once again now. <coughs> that you would warm these hearts. That you would engage these minds. That you would shape these wills. As again now we've come here to see in Jesus. Him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I'm thinking about the Holy Spirit, it doesn't take long before some words from Kent Hughes, the former pastor of College Church of Wheaton, begin to resonate in my mind. He had written something very succinct yet very profound about the Holy Spirit. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the Word, teaching. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to each other, fellowship. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to God, worship. And where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the world, Evangelism. What the Holy Spirit is doing is he's relating. He's connecting. He is taking what otherwise would be separate and bringing something or someone together. What I want to do with you is to look very carefully at the way in which the Holy Spirit has so powerfully been impacting the Apostle Paul as he now pens these thoughts in the third chapter of 2 Corinthians that what you and I are going to see now are three significant, what I will call, connecting points here in these verses that have to do with the way in which God, through the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, begins to guide and direct the Apostle Paul, but likewise directs and guides you and me in the things that matter most. Now, the first connecting point is going to come out of verses 1 through 3. We're going to phrase it like this. That knowing our sufficiency, our sufficiency for ministry is from God, not from us. I want you to see now the connection, the relationship, first of all, between the Holy Spirit and the human heart described in these verses. 
Now, the Apostle Paul begins with a couple of questions. He's feeling rather overwhelmed, you see, by his ministry responsibilities. He wants to communicate truth. But now he looks at the situation in Corinth where he is being opposed. His credibility is being challenged. He has invested 18 months of ministry in Corinth, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 18, which we had covered. But now he poses a question to re-engage them in the relationship with the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Paul's teachings of God's word. He begins with the question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? And you say, well, Gary, what is that all about? You have to bear in mind that in Paul's day, as the missionary movement was advancing, it was advancing in God's sovereign time because now the Roman roads had been established. There was easy movement here and from. Now you've got true missionaries such as the Apostle Paul, but now you've also got counterfeits that are coming along. And these counterfeits that are coming along are carrying with them letters of recommendation saying you ought to listen to what we have to say regarding who God is and what God requires of you. So now what you will find, here's the background to these verses. What you are finding now are what I will call competing letters of recommendation. Who are you going to believe? What are you going to believe? I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. You might remember, if you have spent any time in the book of Acts, that when you get to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, the man known then as Saul to become the Apostle Paul, but then known as Saul, a persecutor of the church, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters. Letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wanted back then a letter of recommendation when he was a persecutor of Christians. Here now, as a Christian, he's looking for the idea of how can I commend myself? What's my letter of recommendation to these Corinthian people? I've ministered among them. Shouldn't they be able to establish in their minds my credibility and my authenticity regarding relationship with God and what the teachings entail? That's the background. Now, the historical background of this, what we've got are competing letters of recommendation. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Second question. Or do we need, as do, as some do, letters of recommendation to you? Or from you? Letters of recommendation. At that time of year where pastors are asked to pen, usually through email or other such things, some letters of recommendation, people that are graduating from high school that are going to college. Some of the best letters of recommendation I've come across that includes one from the words of Victoria Halliburton, who said, I was applying to an MA in educational program at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The letter was provided. Years later, I wanted to see just what my reference had to say about me. And here was this description. 
Behind Virginia's apparent disorganization is a keen analytical mind. Quote, unquote. And here's another one. This one pertains to a job situation. Would you love it? Or George Zashabik, who is the CEO and founder of Media Splash. Letter of recommendation was from the managing director of the UK company. One-liner. It read, If Jason is sitting in your office interviewing for a job, you are absolutely crazy if you don't hire him. Quote, unquote. But one of the fascinating letters of recommendation comes to a recommendation of letters of John Nash. Remember that name, John Nash? Beautiful mind. Sylvia Nasser wrote the book. Ultimately, a movie was created of it, Richard Crowe. This recommendation letter was among many Princeton received for Nash when he applied for the graduate program there. Where others were glowing with his achievements and potentials, this one was unique. It consisted of only five words. He is a mathematical genius. Fascinates me. The professor of him praised him as nothing short of a mathematical genius. When Nash, he had just completed a college degree at 19 years of age. Just a college pass out. Not drop out. Pass out. Letters of recommendation. Now, the Apostle Paul, he has invested his time, his efforts in the people of Corinth. And he's got to pose a series of questions, you see, because evidently Judaizers from Jerusalem have been carrying recommendations for themselves to the people in Corinth, and their recommendations that would carry weight because it was coming from Jerusalem was that these people should be listened to, but they were teaching a relationship with God based upon externals, circumcision, ritualism, and ceremonialism, works rather than grace. Which letter of recommendation then would the people of Corinth accept? Paul's invested 18 months in those people, and as he's invested time in these people, and they've heard him teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he begins with two questions to grip their imaginations. Number one, are we beginning to commit ourselves again? Do I have to go through this all over again? Number two, do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? I've invested time. You have seen how God's word has been taught and worked through me into your hearts. Two questions, but now he moves on. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. What does he mean by that? He's using a metaphor here, letters of recommendation. And what he's saying is, what I've invested in your hearts, you now have to share with others. This is to be an open letter. You are to be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter where you go based upon what I have given you. 
And you show, in verse 3, that you are a letter from Christ, not from Paul. Delivered by us. Written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on the tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You take that word hearts, found in verse 2, written on our hearts. Draw a line to the end of verse 3. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And what you see now is that God is at work through the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, wanting to work in you so that he might work through you. Now, we refer to the Holy Spirit as a he, not an it. He is a person, not a power, merely a power. If we treat the Holy Spirit as an it, we become prideful and say, how can I get more of it? But when we treat the Holy Spirit as a person, we become humble. How can he get more of me? Now, the Holy Spirit is to reside within us. And so the Apostle Paul understands that we've got to counter the pressures from the outward with the person from the inward. And if we lack the person inwardly, we will then over, be overcome by the pressures outwardly. And the Holy Spirit is to reside in your heart and my heart. The person from within helps us to handle the pressures from without. This is then what comes to mind when out of a baseball story, because God loves baseball, here's a story from 1993 where the Major League Baseball season was nearing its end. And what you see is that at that time, the first place Phillies, we're playing against the second place Montreal Expos at the time, now known as the Washington Nationals. Sports writer tells us that in the first game of the series, home team Expos came to bat one inning, trailing 7-4. The first two batters reached base, and the manager sent a pinch hitter to the plate, rookie Curtis Pride, who had never gotten a hit in the major leagues. Pride took his warm-up swings, walked to the plate, and on the first pitch, laced a double, scoring two runners. The stadium thundered. 45,000-plus people standing, screaming their approval. Expo's third base coach called timeout, walked toward Pride, told him to take off his batting helmet, communicating toward him. What's wrong with my helmet, wondered the rookie. And then realizing what his coach intended, Pride tipped his cap in appreciation to the fans. And after the game, someone asked Pride if he could hear the cheering. This, Pride, this person wasn't giving the rookie a hard time. You see, Curtis Pride is 95% deaf. Could hear the crowd cheering? Sign language was delivered to him. Pride then smiled. Here, Pride said, pointing to his heart. I heard the crowd here. You see. Now your heart is God's launching pad. The religionist, the ceremonialist, the ritualist, 
works from the outside in. But what God has done through the work of the Holy Spirit, he works from the inside out, you see. What God has done is captured your heart through the third member of the Trinity, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. That's why it's important that you treat the Holy Spirit as a person. He, not it. How can he get more of me rather than how can I get more of it? And when you put that in proper perspective, you see, well, then you've got a launching pad by which God wants to use you in very powerful ways because you don't merely internalize it. It's your starting point, but it's not your ending point. As you work out the salvation, as Paul would put it, with fear and trembling. So what he's done now is created a tremendous sense of balance of the way in which he wants to work as twice now, and you saw it once in verse 2, again in verse 3, he uses the heart as the place of residence, the place of renewal, where the person of God operates effectively for God's glory. So if you wake up in the morning, you're saying to yourself, I lack the sufficiency to be able to do what I need to do. Here, then, is where you start. You go with God's word into the internal recesses of where God resides, where God wants to work, where your launching pad for effective living is meant to be. Knowing our sufficiency for ministries from God, so you start with this relationship. You note the connection between the Holy Spirit, number one, and the human heart, because you've spotted where the Spirit is referred to in verse 3, with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, as he is now connecting your older and your newer testaments together, you see. But once you've begun there, and you don't end there, because now we've got for ourselves a second connecting point. You move onward to verses 4, down to verse 6. And second of all, knowing that our suffering, or excuse me, our sufficiency for ministries from God, now notice, furthermore, the connection between the Holy Spirit and what is known as the New Covenant. Pick it up in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Notice how this reads. Now notice how this does not read. It does not read, such is the confidence that we have toward God. What it does read is such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Now, here's the crux of the matter. And the opponents of the Apostle Paul who come with their own letters of recommendation but false teachings and are emphasizing salvation by circumcision, salvation by ritualism, salvation by ceremonialism. And some of us grew in those kinds of traditions, religious traditions, you see. All outward base, no inward realities. Their approach is such as the confidence that we have toward God. But what I want to say at this point is that they have insufficient funds to be able to transact a relationship with God. Where do we find sufficient funding for living? by recognizing it is found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
too many people leave the through Christ out. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Now, the religionists might be very fervent toward God, but fervency is not a test of truth. A religionist might be very sincere about their relationship with God. Look at all the religions of this world. But the testing of reality is not based upon your fervency, and the testing of your relationship with God is not based upon your sincerity. The testing of your relationship with God is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Where does Christ fit into this whole matter of how do I gain a sense of sufficiency in this fallen world? Anthony Bourdain. Others. Are you grappling with what you're seeing over the course of these days? Why is this in the culture in which we are living today? Where it seems outwardly, people seem to have it together, but there's something wrong inwardly. I would argue from this text, you see, that there are some that are trying to find a confidence that they have toward God, but without Christ, and they are unfunded. There are insufficient funds. But when the Holy Spirit, the person, he wants more you, reminds you that your wealth and your relationship with God is such that the riches are in Christ alone. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. You know that the test of true Christianity is not based upon sincerity, as important as sincerity is, or upon fervency, as important as fervency is. No, the test is Christ. Did he die for your sins? Was he raised on the third day for you? William Wilbur Chapman, who was tied with the Moody Bible Institute, years ago, tragedy occurred in his family, made it necessary for him to head to the West Coast. Now, there was a man who attended his church that visited him just before he was about to leave, and the writer tells us, the biographer of Chapman, as the two men talked together, this man took a piece of paper out of his pocket and slipped into Chapman's hand. When Chapman looked at it, he saw that it was a blank check made out to him, signed by his friend. He was stunned. And he asked, do you mean you're giving me a signed check? to be filled out as I need? Exactly, the man said. I don't know at this moment how much you might require, and I want you to draw any amount that you will need to be able to make ends meet. The Apostle Paul would write, and my God will supply every need of yours, according to his riches, not your riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. And while you're going to meet a lot of people, whether it's secular or religious, they're very sincere about what they believe, 
And they're very fervent about what they believe. But it is outward, it's not inward. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that inwardly, the heart is the launching pad out of which the Holy Spirit wants to work through you. But it begins in you. This is what gives you confidence when you wake up in the morning. That first question is, do I have sufficient funding internally to tackle the responsibilities of the day? The Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 16, who is sufficient for these things, he asked. But now what I want you to see is how he works with the answer to that question in verse 5. He starts with the negative and moves to the positive. Brilliant teacher that he is. Very balanced. Negative? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. He's being so realistic, isn't he? I mean, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But aren't you glad that he does not end there? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. So then, question, where then does it come from? But our sufficiency is from God. You are a sufficiently funded believer if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior about the things that matter most in this world. And so we're taken aback when it seems as though someone has it together. They're known publicly, and they might be known internationally. But what is happening in the inner recesses of that heart anyways? When people are addressing the whole matter of the pressures from without but they are devoid of the person from within, the result is that there's this collapsing of personhood. But the believer knows, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The outward is insufficient in comparison to the inward, and the Holy Spirit is working inwardly and working outwardly, so he is open. He's being honest with you, as you and I need to be, before we came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything. My religious efforts won't do it for me. My secular intellect won't do it for me. My religious upbringing won't do it for me. My infant baptism won't do it for me. What will do it for me? Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Key phrase, from us. Man, but our sufficiency is from God. Did you now draw the line from the from us to the from God and create that sense of contrast that's there and now begun to deal with the outwards as it relates to the inwards? Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. You see how this is coherent? See how this begins to make incredible sense? But then he's not done yet, is he? No. Now you're up to verse 6. Verse 6. 
who has made us sufficient. And you say, is that all that's needed? No, you've got a responsibility. There's purposefulness to your sufficiency. You have been properly, eternally funded for a purpose. Here's the reason. To be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit. And you say, well, Gary, now I don't necessarily go walking around talking about being a minister of the new covenant, so can you help me here? Well, we'll do our best. But what I want you to see here at the onset is that he uses this word new. And when you have opportunity, take your Bible and track the way God utilizes the idea of the new. You have a new song. There is a new commandment, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another, Jesus would say, in that upper room prior to his death. In 2 Corinthians, you are going to be told in chapter 5 that we are new creation people, and ultimately we are informed that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. What interests me is that the Hebrew word here for new, hados, the Greek word for the word new is kainos, can also be referred to as renewed, which often gets so overlooked when people are talking about this. In other words, what God is doing here is he's tying you to a passage of Scripture I'd love for you to write down next to verse 6. It's Jeremiah chapter 31. Take it from 31 through 34 on your own. And notice how God speaks of the fact that there is a new covenant, which also can be translated renewed covenant, because the new begins with the old and then expands and creates something new in terms of completion, the finished work of Jesus Christ, you see, on that cross. You say, Gary, well, that's a lot of theology. But at the same time, what he wants us to do is to be good theologians with what he's got to offer us, because this pertains to the way in which we go about living our lives as new covenant people. For the letter kills, he says at the end of verse 6. But the Spirit gives life. So is he now attacking the Older Testament? (laughs) Just the opposite. You could have been a New Covenant believer in the Old Testament times if you put your faith and trust in Messiah who is to come. You see the word letter here, these verses that he is attacking, is grama, not graphe. What Paul is attacking is not the Old Testament, but rather the outward, the fleshly, the ritualistic teachings that are coming out of Jerusalem at that time with counterfeit letters of recommendation. But what he wants to embrace is the graphe, the written word of God, which from Older Testament to Newer Testament points to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So now you've got finished work on your hands here. You are properly funded. And so the internals of your life best the outward issues of life. And you're equipped not to be self-sufficient in and of yourself, but God-sufficient. You're not God-sufficient for yourself. You're God-sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant to other people. God has placed you here to impact others for God's glory. And now you've got your second connecting point as it relates to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the human heart, number one, the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant, number two. But now you're ready for the third, the Holy Spirit, you see, and what we see here coming our way in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Check it out. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone 
came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, you see, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So now thirdly, you've moved from the human heart of 1 through 3 through the New Covenant in verses 4 through 6 to thirdly, the Holy Spirit and the surpassing glory of verses 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And you're scratching your head at this point. You're saying, I'm supposed to know this stuff where it says here, uh, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. Well, what happened was that Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and it, <coughs> excuse me, his face was radiating, illuminated. He'd been in the presence of God. Sometimes you get a glimpse of that. You ever notice someone's countenance? Come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. And you don't have quite the words to describe what you're seeing, but best you can say is this person glows. It doesn't matter if you're more introverted or more extroverted. Where the Holy Spirit has gripped your heart, there is something here in the countenance. There is something that begins to radiate from the inside out. This is truth through personality unfolding in front of very, the eyes of people. It's the glory of God. Now, the concept of the glory of God first appears in your Old Testament in Exodus 16, verse 7. The word glory carries with it the idea of heavy. As we've said on occasion, if God is heavy, it means you don't take God lightly. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, Isaiah tells us that God said, I will not give my glory, my weight, my heaviness to another. It's an astounding statement that he's making at that point. The psalmist tells us, surely the heavens declare the glory of God. So the glory, then, is a special term that depicts God's visible and active presence in our midst. In your Older Testament, Moses made this request of God, Now, show me your glory. And God, who is so concerned for the apostle, rather for Moses, his well-being, knew that Moses would have to be shielded from the glory and so God allowed for Moses to be positioned in such a way that Moses was allowed to see the back, but not the face of God. Now, we know that God is spirit, so he doesn't have a physical back or physical face. But what's meant by seeing God's back? I would say the answer is that you are seeing the afterglow of God. It's the presence of God is passed by. Moses at that point. And so here's the sense of the glow that comes from the work of God from within. You and I know when you inch your way into the Newer Testament, there's that great story that's told in the 
Christmas account. Where in John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. What fascinates me is that the word dwelt there is to tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But now what I want you to recognize is that as the Holy Spirit is operative in your life, God tabernacles within us. Christ came and tabernacled among us. The Holy Spirit tabernacles within us. The Holy Spirit in the human heart. The Holy Spirit in the new covenant. The Holy Spirit you see in the surpassing glory. And all of this is tied together in such a way that maybe as you think about how this relationship with Jesus Christ occurs, you can think about this story told out of the Middle East of a prior era. The writer tells us that the land of Persia was once ruled by a wise shah who cared greatly for his people, only wanted what was best for them. One day he disguised himself as a poor man and went to visit the public baths. The water for the baths was heated by a furnace in the cellar, so the shah made his way to that dark place to sit with the man who tended the fire. And the two men shared food, and the Shah befriended him in his loneliness. And day after day, uh, the Shah went to visit the man. And the worker became so attached to this, this stranger because he came where he was at. Where he was at. And then one day, the Shah revealed his true identity, the writer tells us. And expected the man to ask him for a gift. But instead, he looked into his leader's face with wonder in his voice and said, you left your palace and your glory to sit with me in this dark place, to eat my food, to care about what happens to me. On others, you may give your gifts, but to me, you have given yourself. Which is what Christ did for Paul on the road to Damascus as Paul was carrying a letter of recommendation. But the ultimate letter of recommendation was on three days after crucifixion when God raised Jesus from the dead and he recommends Jesus to you. And if you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, You've got sufficient funding. Let's stand together. Some here come and they just feel so insufficient. Paul would ask, who is sufficient for these things? But he offers us something in this culture that would need to be addressed full-heartedly. Full, full Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Is it going to be from us? 
works? Or is it going to be from God? Grace. So I pray that each one in each service has come to grips with the fact that due to our sinful nature, we come into this world with insufficient funds. Religionism nor secularism can provide the answers. But when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, our sufficiency is from you. We're properly funded to live for you, to minister for you, and to give you and you alone all the glory. Thank you, Father. And we give you all the praise now in in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.